have to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, man. This is a team effort. Ten, five, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just gotta play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Scoring at the Movies. No sound effect there? No. Oh, Ryan, nothing like that. Oh, is that my thing? Wait, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> we didn't talk about that. I surprised him. We're the Every Other Week podcast that ganders back at Sports Flicks. Caution uninitiated, we are going to thoroughly break down the entire story of this movie, so spoilers are ahead. I'm the guy jam-packed with inner crapola, Ryan Ellis, and here's the man who's felt that tuning fork ring in his loins many times, for all kinds of reasons. My new partner in podcastery, Chris DiGregorio. Thank you, Ryan, and uh, i got to tell you, I'm tuning a little bit right now. I'm a modern man. I'm not bothered by that. <laughs> I was watching Friends clips recently, and every time anything remotely gay happens, they all freak out. I know. It did not age well, necessarily, but this movie did. Mm. You like that segue? Very well nicely done. Thank it is, you. of Thank course, you. Tin Cup. Before we get into the body of Tin Cup, though, some things about Mighty Ducks. You said you don't remember things that happened to you when you were 10 or 12 years old, setbacks and whatnot, and oh, I agreed no. with you, and I thought of one. Did I set off a chain of just like, one. unleashing some repressed memories? Just one. When I was okay. trying to make a baseball team, we're talking overhand hardball, when I was about that age, 10 or 12, right. I wasn't good enough. I knew I wasn't good enough, but I didn't make it. And then, so they tell the people, I think they just announced the team, they don't say who didn't make the team, and there's 10 or, I don't know how many, 5, 10 of us that didn't make it. And I was trying to keep the tears from coming out of my eyes. And I think oh. I did. But I remember that very distinctly. So I do have a memory like that. But did that shape you for the next 20 no, years? definitely not. Aha! Although I have always felt a little inferior compared to a lot of my softball teammates. But I also realized they're simply better than me. And that's okay. I can still be good in my own right. I can still play the fucking game. I'm like giving it up for 20 years. You'll always be a winner at heart, Ryan. Thank you. always be a winner at heart. Also, finishing second last or third last if you're the Ducks doesn't mean you can't win because a team in the CBC Softball League just last year won the trophy despite having the second worst record going into the playoffs. They were 2-8, and eight, I think it was, and they won the championship. So it is possible. Oh, yeah. There's lots of examples in sport of mediocre teams squeaking into the playoffs. And that's my third point because yeah. maybe the Ducks' Cinderella story is also an homage to the Minnesota North Stars, who we talked about in the podcast a little. We did, yeah. They had just made the Stanley Cup Finals in 1991 despite having a losing record going into the playoffs. That was the year when Pittsburgh won their first cup, and they did beat Minnesota in the finals, who were up two games to one at one point, believe it or not. But Minnesota had a bad record, something like 76 points, and Pittsburgh had, I don't know, 90 or 100 points, something like that. You're talking about 1991, where Mario Lemieux was at the height of his career. And Yager, and Yager was, Yager was just breaking into mm-hmm. his own there. The point still holds that you can have a very satisfying story and a sense of triumph and an emotional reaction to their success as a team and as players without going to that nth degree of actually winning the championship. Yes. Well, we agree on that for sure. We said that. And a lot of the great sports movies of the more recent era, like Friday Night Lights, which I talked about, have them not winning. That's based on reality, but them not winning is part of why that movie is stuck with me. It's actually great that you mentioned that because I think it'll play very well into this particular movie Mm -hmm. we'll talk about today. Oh, yeah. You have to have, as a director, as a screenwriter, as a production generally, I think you have to have the courage of your convictions and the quality of your script in order to finish a movie that way because if you don't feel like the audience is going to emotionally connect with the characters or feel what you want them to feel in lieu of that in-your-face victory you're kind of hanging yourself out to dry unless you have them win. And that's when you have to have like yeah. that cliche victory moment just to ensure that you get the audience where you want them to go, even if it's not in the most eloquent, meaningful, or best way possible. You at least experience something of a satisfying ending. All right, well, this week's movie, Tin Cup, which was released in August 1996. So we're looking at, what's that, 12 years, almost 12 years. It was 28 that... Whoa, 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 Ryan. 22 years, right? 22 no, yeah. years, yeah. Ryan. My math is bad there. I didn't write all this stuff. I don't have as many notes as I do when I do it with Bev. You've been taking all of those forget-me-now pills that Joe Booth is always taking. What do you mean in 2018? I often take those. I've also only been up for a few hours, so maybe I'm not quite awake yet. The movie was 28th at the 1996, 22 years ago, U.S. box office. Independence Day was number one by a mile. And the critics weren't big fans of Tin Cup. Just 69% of Rotten Tomatoes' tallies are positive reviews. That's a little surprising to me. I thought it would be better than that, too. Not yeah. massively surprising. I thought it would be better. Now, question for you. What other golf movie, big golf... Uh, Happy Gilmore. Yeah, not good. I didn't even have to <laughs> elaborate too far. You're right. 
Happy Gilmore. Also Which I think succeeded. I think they did pretty well, as I recall. I think so. I'd be shocked if it rated more highly on Rotten Tomatoes than Tin Cup. <laughs> but they didn't. I think it probably has as large, if not a larger, cult following now. One of my favorite Sandler movies, well, no, my very favorite from him, of course, is Punch Drunk Love by Paul Thomas Anderson. It's a great movie. But of the typical Sandler movies, it's definitely one of the better ones. At some point, probably one that we should think about doing down the road once we circle back to golf again. Anyway. Mm-hmm. All right, well then, Tin Cup. Obviously, you're a fan. I'm a fan. We picked it. We're yep. probably not going to pick... Well, maybe we'll pick some bad movies so we can really rip on them. Mighty Ducks might have been bad, but you know what I'm saying. Movies we don't like. But we do like Tin Cup. I have watched the sequence at the end when Costner gets the 12 and the 18th hole on YouTube many, many times. It's one of my favorite things to watch late at night. But what about the movie in general? What do you think of it? Some details here. I have a lot of conflicting thoughts now, which isn't to say I don't like it. I love it. We talked about... How Mighty Ducks was a movie from my 10-year-old days. I was roughly the same age as the characters in the movie. When this came out, I would have seen it as a 15 or 16-year-old. I was also getting into golf. Mm -hmm. I was starting to appreciate human interactions a little bit more. Even though, and this is a little bit shameful for me to talk about, is until you told me that this was actually a romantic comedy two weeks ago, whenever we first discussed Tin Cup, I never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. I always thought of it as a sports movie, and... To be honest, I haven't seen it start to finish in probably 15 years before watching it for this purpose. Only clips here and there, like you, I'd look up specific scenes I remembered I wanted to see. Never thought of it as a romantic comedy, but going back to it, realizing that even if I didn't identify it at the time when I was younger, part of the reason I loved it then and continued to think highly of it to this day was because of the relationships in the movie. That's, of course, Renee Russo and Kevin Costner's characters, but even more so was... The real love story? The real love story. Cheech Marin and Kevin Costner. They hug, or at least put their arms around each other at the end of the that is golf a game. fantastic relationship in that mm-hmm. movie. And my favorite character in that movie is Romeo. I thought Cheech Marin just knocked it out of the park. And I love the jobs that all the main cast members do. I thought Rene Russo was excellent. I thought Kevin Costner was great. And I thought Don Johnson was really good as the heel of the movie as well. But... My oh, man, he brought a tear to my eye. I agree. Romeo is the best character, although Costner is in his element. Ron Sheldon, who directed this, he also, of course, wrote and directed Bull Durham, which Bev and I did a few months ago. That's right, yeah. And this is Sheldon nearly at his best, because Bull Durham is his best movie, but this is not that far behind. He makes Costner sexy more than anyone else ever has, and Costner is a good-looking dude. He was only in his 40s at this point. But there's something about the movies Costner does with Sheldon where maybe because he's funny... And he obviously has a sense of humor. He doesn't do a lot of movies where he can be funny. He's actually been maybe a little too serious. Maybe that's why he gets mocked by people so often. He is in that group of Nicolas Cage. And who's the other one again? I'm forgetting the third name. Well, Will Ferrell actually sometimes is in that group too. But Really? Jim Carrey, that's the other one. So Carrey, oh, yeah. Cage, and Costner are the C's. For different reasons, get hacked on by people more than most of the big star actors. But when Costner does a movie like this, how do you hack on him? Because he's both great at the golf. He's a natural athlete. He was a great baseball player. He seems like a good golfer. And he also is funny, and he's sexy, and he delivers Sheldon's dialogue as well as anybody ever has. No, I agree entirely, and I think you're spot on when you say that Costner's appeal, part of it is that humor. He's not your prototypical comedian or funny man in the way that Carrie, or you mentioned Farrell, and sometimes the other can kind of fall flat when they try to go serious. He doesn't deliver that way, but he's got that straight man delivery sometimes, the deadpan delivery sometimes, Mm -hmm. that just gives you that chuckle. It's not a laugh out loud thing, but it's a chuckle. It's endearing, and it really plays in well with the way that he handles the dramatic parts of the role as well. The thing I don't agree with, though, Rene Russo. I don't think she's bad. I think she's been good in movies. I think she's really good in Get Shorty, which was the year before this. Yeah. She's great at being snarky, but when she breaks down on the golf course, when Costner's breaking down in the infamous end of the movie, the way she's laughing and going nuts almost, just knock it on! I didn't feel she delivered that very well. Maybe because she's appealing and she's great to look at, and you've already watched her for two hours, it isn't a bad thing, but I thought it was actually not a great thing. It didn't really work as well as it could have. I think of Amy Madigan, who's Costner's wife in Field of Dreams, or Susan Sarandon, who worked with Costner and Bull Mm. Durham. If they had been in that exact same role, I think I'm going to believe the way they delivered those scenes, or that one scene anyway, better than she did. So I didn't dislike her, but I think of the big four, she was the worst, and maybe arguably miscast. I don't know if I would agree with being miscast, and I understand you said arguably there, but I would agree that she, of those big four, the Cheech Marin, Don Johnson, Kevin Costner, Renee Russo group, yeah, she's my least favorite. I also think she's given the least to do as a character through the course of the movie, so maybe that plays into it a little bit. And with regards to the last scene, I didn't pick up on that necessarily, but again, I wasn't paying that much attention to it when I rewatched it. One thing I did notice is the clear dubbing over of I love you at the end and I don't know whose decision that was 
Well, she's on camera when it's said, so she had to have said it in the scene when they shot on the golf course. Well, she's just screaming. They dubbed the sound. I can't believe it! I yeah. love you! Yeah. She's on camera when she says that. Really? Yeah, and then they cut the costume and he gets this smile. That's what makes him smile when he nails the 12 and it finally goes in the hole, is when he hears, I think he's supposed to hear her say, I love you. No, I think he is supposed to as well. I just don't know if that was a decision that was made when her shot on screen was originally recorded and they re-recorded the audio and looped it over later. Because there's weird mouth action that doesn't line up. I'll have to look at that dub. again. Maybe they changed the dialogue. I don't know. It's possible. Know. Now you've got me questioning myself, Ryan. I thought I had a great <laughs> little catch there. Well, we know from bad lip reading on YouTube that you can make somebody look like they're saying something that has nothing to do with what they actually said. So maybe that is what happened. It is interesting the way that she goes from maybe not loving David Sims, the Don Johnson character, but being with him. She overhears one shitty comment and she's out of there and she's with Roy. Yeah. I always attributed that. And I never gave too much thought to their relationship, I'll be honest with you. But I kind of attributed that to her, you know, maybe not flaky character or airy character, but the way she talks about her past is, you know, she was floating from thing to thing. You know, she hooked up with a cowboy and went with him somewhere, and then that didn't work out. She tried a career, and that didn't work out, so let's go to another career, and that's not really working out, so let's try this. She's a psychiatrist, though. She has a great job. She does now, but she was questioning herself at that point, right? I'm not a great psychiatrist, and you're not a great golf pro, right? And that was kind of the comparison she was making. Mm -hmm. I kind of took it to mean that she was at that stage in her life anyway, and she kind of touches on this at the end of the movie, too. At that point, she was searching, right? She was trying to find something and hadn't, and maybe... She was trying to find that with the David Sims character, and I think we've all been in relationships sometimes where you're like, eh, this is not quite working, and maybe that's how she felt there, and then all it took was that to say, all right, this is the excuse I need to get out of this, and let's see what the bad boy over there, the risk taker, is going to offer me and see if that works out instead. And obviously the message of the movie is that is what she needed. She needed somebody to take those risks on her behalf a little bit. But I have a really important question for you, Ryan. Where's your movie tagline? Oh, in a nutshell... Not one of my favorite ones. Really? Because you inspired me last week, and I tried to come up with a tagline of my own for you. Well, I'm going to do mine first? Then? Yeah, okay. let's, let's do some... All right, here we go. So, small business owner's failures are corrected after marathon sex with his physician. <laughs> <laughs> his physician bones him, and then he's good. His shanks are gone. The yips are out of there. Damn it. I concede defeat already. <laughs> I'm glad you liked that one. That was one of my it. favorites. What's yours, then? I liked it. I was trying to come up with something off the cuff on the way over here, but I was thinking something along the lines of... Texan Tin Cup tries to take down top tour tournament, but instead experiences tearful tragedy and then triumph. I like alliteration. I've done that many times in nutshells. So yeah, well, I, I, not I, bad I did at all. my best. Maybe a little long, but not bad. It was a little long. I've been doing this for a long time. I like the concise and lurid nature of your uh, <laughs> whenever, <laughs> I can find, whenever I can find luridness to put in these nutshells, I will do so. And also uh, to miss the point. Well, it's not really missing the point in this case because he does seem to be a better golfer after he fucks her. Oh, yeah. And I love the song during that sequence. The Amanda Marshall tune, which I can never find on iTunes. This could take all night. I guess it's an original, <laughs> Amanda, original Amanda Marshall song. I thought it was some kind of cover song. I've been a fan of hers for a long time, and I love that tune. It is a great choice. And they play it at the end of the movie yeah. as well, so it plays twice. All right, so let's get back to the beginning of the story. And we first meet Roy and Molly and everybody, the lackeys of the golf what do you call that place anyway? You're a golf person. driving range. Of course, that's what it's called, yeah. I think he calls it, I mean, on his hat at the U.S. Open, you'll see Tin Cup Club. So I guess he calls okay. it a golfing club. In Salome, Texas. Salome. Yeah. So there's the sexist riddle in the first dialogue scene, which is solved immediately by Molly. It's the one we've probably all heard before of about. Of course. If, how's that go again? It's a surgeon, uh, right? He walks into an operating theater ready to... Right. I can't operate on this boy or this man. He's my son. And why? Because it's a woman doctor. I remember falling for that, too. How is that possible? I never think about the fact that the mother, or it could be a female doctor. I think there's more to that riddle that actually says why it can't be the father. But for the life of me, I can't remember what it is. Right yeah, they now. make it clear in the riddle. They make it I'm butchering clear. it right now. But we are, we are not great at riddles. I think we've established that. <laughs> but it does show her feminist side and her individual side off the bat. And it's yeah. not like Roy has a problem with that. Sims would have probably objected to that. He wouldn't have liked her saying, well, that's what the thing is. Well, that's bullshit. Women can't be doctors. I bet Sims felt that way. I'm sure, yeah. I mean, that's the way they play that character. And I laughed out loud when I heard the riddle. I didn't remember the scene from the past, and I was scared that they were going to leave it unsolved. I actually found a really nice little resolution to that whole little scene when she came in and solved it. And as gobsmacked as Roy looked that somebody would dare solve it and foil his attempt to win the bet and all that, it was great. 
and it really just established that as dumb as Roy is, and they hammer that point. He home, is pretty dumb, yeah. He's pretty dumb. Although he was a collegiate golfer, right? like that's his backstory. Right. Is that he carried the David Sims character to glory mm. at the collegiate levels. So clearly he went to... But a some, jock scholarship, though, like a football player, well, I guess. The say, guy's yeah. never got a class. Exactly. But man, they really hammer home the point that he is not a smart man, but he knows what love is. Nicely done, Forrest Gump. <laughs> also in the South. That's a different part of the South. That's but. right, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting start to the movie. And he's not smart, but his little posse there, they are even dumber. Mm. They have to be, otherwise he would be be completely... Well, he wouldn't be unlikable, but you wouldn't root for him as much, except the fact that he's the smartest one of the dumb ones. Because not even Romeo seems like he's brilliant. He's a good caddy, and he's a great character. He is great. But of all of those guys, Roy is the smartest one. Yeah, absolutely. What did you think of the first lesson that Rene Russo has, and she breaks out all of that golf? I was just about to ask you the same question. You're a golfer. What do you think of that? I loved it. And the reason I loved it is because in my childhood, my father probably owned every one of those gadgets Uh, at some point. Not the the little thing that hanged from her hat and swung in front. Like, I couldn't figure (laughs) out what that was supposed to accomplish necessarily, but all those other things, the braces, the little guides, and oh man, he had all that stuff. Does it ever work? No. No. <laughs> Have you ever tried it? Even just for fun? Yeah, I've played around mm. with those things. Does that make a difference? No. If anything, I think a lot of the time it makes it worse. I think the best training aids in terms of golf swing are usually the most basic things in the world that just help you line yourself up and things like that. So when I saw her break all that out and slap it on and say, I'm trying to learn the game and I bought all these things off the golf network and it cost me $200, and <laughs> it flashed me right back. It was great. And his reaction was perfect too. It's all that crack. You don't need that. First, it's touch her from behind and everything. Do all these wonderful things. Be one with nature. Or grip it and rip it, which is probably the best advice. If you have talent, though, that's the other thing that shouldn't be forgotten. If you're talented at sports, the grip it and rip it approach to any of them, hockey, baseball, golf, anything with a club or a bat, okay, that makes sense if you're already talented. If you're not, then you really have to play the game for a long time if you want to be even just remotely good at it. I've never golfed before. I've been on driving ranges and I've been on mini putt like most people have. But I've never once actually been on a range to play. This was something else I was really interested to ask you because it really played into my enjoyment of the movie as a whole. And I didn't know how other people would feel about it if they weren't as familiar with golf. Then they have to like the rom-com stuff, I guess. Maybe. But what was your impression of Roy as a golfer? He's good, isn't he? He seems to be to me. seems like Costner is a natural golfer. Right. But when he's playing, especially in the early stages, right, when he's playing the qualifying tournaments Mm -hmm. again at the U.S. Open. The implosion where he ends up with just the seven iron at the yeah, end. Yeah, things like Romeo that. Romeo quits. Did you get the impression he was a great golfer or just middling good enough but not great? Well, the movie's saying he's a great golfer, but he didn't have his shot the way Sims did. He's certainly better than Sims is the way the movie's saying that he is. So maybe he's better than all these guys. And I don't know enough about golf to analyze if he's actually bad at it. I remember many years ago a guy at work loaned me Bird, the Clint Eastwood movie about Charlie Parker. The saxophonist is what he played, right? I think it was anyway. Okay. And I watched it that night, took it back to the guy, and he asked me what I thought of the fingering. I thought, seemed okay to me. Forrest Whitaker seemed to do it right. But I guess my friend at work... First, you choked down several bad sex-related jokes, and then (laughs) turned your mind to fingering of a saxophone. So I guess the friend knows about fingering saxophones, or the way you're supposed to do it properly. Yeah, exactly. Nice joke there. (laughs) Sexual innuendo. But I didn't know what to look for. Seemed okay to me. So same with this. You can analyze that way better than I can if he seems like a decent golfer. He's definitely good at using a baseball bat and a shovel and a rake. That's a fun scene. That's in the trailer. That's one of the big parts of the trailer is the sequence when he plays with the garden equipment and baseball bats. I love seeing him take the swing just knowing Coster and Bull Durham and Field of Dreams. Seeing him swing the... Same director and writer, yeah. (laughs) But what about that? You can't pick up your ball and hit it with a baseball bat. No, of course not. But he's challenging this other guy to a bet. So at that point, they're not playing a legal round of golf. I said just be one stroke anyway, wouldn't it? Because if you actually touch your ball, if it's in the rough or something, and you're trying to clear away the shit around it, and you touch the ball, that's a stroke. Isn't that how that works? You would still take your shots, and if you end up putting the ball in in five, it'd actually be six. Isn't that how that works? There could be penalties involved. There's a lot of really detailed penalty rules in golf, and mm. it kind of depends on Gentleman's the game, too. You're supposed to call it on yourself. And if you don't, there could be actually additional strokes if mm. you fail to. But yeah, just to like wrap up the point about how good he is, you talked about that seven iron round, right? Mm-hmm. He breaks every other club in his bag. Romeo breaks some of them. Yeah, that's true. He does. Okay, question before you get to your point. Yeah. Again, you know golf clubs better than I do. Do they break that easily? Yeah. Really? I've broken one over my knee. Out of I'd anger? Say, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. In my younger days. Okay. In my less placid days. They break easy. Okay, so anyway, is he a good golfer or not? 
Yeah, objectively he is. They tell you how good he is, but at the end of that round, and I can't remember what hole specifically it was off the top of my head that he actually pulled all the clubs out and started breaking them. It was somewhere around the 10th or 11th hole, mm-hmm. I think, right? He was about halfway right. through the round. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, he gets to the clubhouse and his buddies are hanging out there. He waves the scorecard in his hand and he says, 65 for golf, your standard par score. Let's just go with par score. If people don't know what that means, yeah, oh well. You should be able to put the ball in the, all the holes in a total of 72 is what you're about to say. Yeah, exactly. That's par 3s, par 4s, par 5s. That's the recommendation of the course. That's what a scratch zero handicap golfer is. So to do it in 65 strokes with one club in your hand for mm-hmm. at least More a couple half, holes, or About half, yeah. About half of the round. That is incredibly talented. I looked it up back when I was briefly attempting to become some kind of golf professional myself. I was curious. So I looked up some statistics. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 15% of all golfers in the U.S. will maintain a score of roughly 80. So that's eight strokes above par. Just is still good, isn't it? If you're an amateur, that's very good. What's your handicap, by the way? These days, probably a little bit higher than that. My best, I would be a few strokes below that in the nice. mid-70s. What qualifies you to be a professional, then? Oh, you got to be a lot better than that. Really? You can't just be shooting 72. You have to be able to shoot. Oh, really? I've seen articles on this, too. And because they play harder courses, they set them up longer. They set the rough higher. They set the fairways more narrow. They set the greens faster. It's not so easy compared to what our courses are if you just go out on a weekend and play. So that's why you got to be better when you, you play be those courses. Better. Okay. But so for him to shoot 65 at a course that was set up for a U.S. qualifier with one club, and it sets him up to be an incredibly talented golfer. It's a miracle. It spoke to me then that this was a legitimately, incredibly naturally talented guy, and the fact that he hadn't made it on the tour just really emphasized, as a movie watcher and a golf fan, how much he was struggling with the decision-making and the mental part of the game, which is massive in golf. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's big in any sport. And maybe it's actually probably not too dissimilar from baseball. You know, you're standing in the batter's box and waiting for the pitch to come in, and there's just a million thoughts running through your head. That's what you can kind of envision a golf swing being like, especially in a pressure-packed situation like a professional tournament or a qualifier. You're standing there, you're staring down, except it's a motionless ball. It's not going to be coming at you at speed, right? So you have all the time in the world to stare at it and think about, all i got to do is hit this bloody tiny ball forward in a straight line, and that's it. How hard can that be? So it's super easy to psych yourself out. It's super easy to overthink things, to get really technical. You talked about gripping and ripping it being not that great a strategy if you're not talented. Sometimes, even for people that don't really play the game, it is the best strategy. Get out of your own head. Go out there, swing the club, have fun, and see what happens. Because if you overthink it, you might turn into Roy first round of the U.S. Open. He's in his head, he's overthinking things, and he's got the shanks. Well, he says at the end, you can't just listen to your heart. you got to listen to your brain. Yeah. Look at these days, he sounds like such a moron. <laughs> and he is kind of a moron. And that's a lesson he does learn, but you're saying that he did have to listen to his heart more often than his brain, which is what he was always doing before. Golf is legitimately one of those games that you have to find that balance. You have to listen to your head sometimes. You really do, because there are some things where you just cannot go for it. And that is a message that Roy ultimately never really learns. And that's why the movie sticks out so much. It does, yeah. So he always has to go for it. That's just his character foible. He can't resist. And if you're going to be a successful golfer, there are times when it's just impossible or at least very much not in your best interest to go for it. Just take the extra stroke, lay up. Don't try to blast it through the trees. Don't try to ricochet off the shitter onto the green. (laughs) Swallow your pride for a little bit. But then there's instances where you don't want to overthink it. You just want to get up there and, like you said, grip it and rip it. You just got to find that balance and whatever works for you. I love in the end, in that big 12 on the 18th, that he says we're home the first time he does it. So he knows he hit it far enough, but then he fails over and over again after the nutting it the first time. And the great line Romeo has when he says, I can make it across. Well, then do it and quit fucking around. (laughs) That's great. Because he does seem to be fucking around. He hits a couple of them where as soon as the ball's left his club, he drops his head as if, well, I didn't do that one. And the ball's in the middle of the water. It's not even close to the green. So he is fucking around. This is the same shot that he made in Don Johnson's charity tournament, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same course. Craig Stadler challenged him. Craig Stadler, the walrus. Right. I love Craig Stadler. He's in a few scenes throughout the course of this movie, most notably this one during David Sims' charity tournament where he challenges Tin Cup to make that shot, and then, of course, Roy can't help himself, so he gets kicked off as the caddy. You're fired. You're fired. Go home. But apparently Stadler was so bored sitting around on set all day that he took a golf cart to the local liquor store, bought a couple two-fours of beer, and brought it back to set. And on the way to the set, got pulled over by the police, because he'd driven like a mile and a half in the golf cart. 
<laughs> and when he explained what was happening, they just let him go and said, all right, go back to set. Back in the day when they were filming this, Costner was a single man. Don Johnson was a single man. They had all these sort of wealthy golfers hanging around all the time. And they were apparently quite notorious for going nuts on some nights. Golf groupies? Not golf groupies necessarily, but just partying Oh, hard partying, okay. To the point where they'd show up for the movie the next day and not be able to see straight. So they, Which makes sense for Roy's character. Maybe not so much for David. When I was watching the scene of the first round of the U.S. Open, Roy's playing his first round. He's super hungover. He can't mm-hmm. see straight. And Romeo turns to him and says, i got to tell you, man, you can't hold your liquor like you used to. <laughs> And well, somebody made me drink all night. Yeah, that might have been a coaching mistake on my part. <laughs> I wonder if they inserted that scene into the movie because Costner and was Johnson... Was legit hungover. Yeah, it was legit hungover. And they yeah. thought, yeah, let's play off this a little bit. It wouldn't surprise me. The great thing about this movie generally for me is the fact that they really do capture the feel of golfing. The feel of golfers, the feel of the golf course, the feel of the sport. Golfers are inveterate gamblers. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just like there's too much standing around involved while you're waiting for other people to play. Maybe it's just there's so much that you can bet on. You can bet on the longest shot, straightest shot, whatever gets closest to the hole. You can say, well, I bet I can hook this one around this tree. I bet I can ricochet off that. There's so many opportunities for it. And you bet against people, too. He can't make that shot. He can't ricochet off the shitter. The fact that Roy is such a gambler, and he can't help himself. He does it time and again. He does it when Romeo's breaking the clubs. Don't think I can do it with the 7-iron. Who wants to bet me I can't do it with the 7-iron? It's such a part of the mentality of the sport, when you get away from the professional tournaments anyway, that it rang so true, especially as a means to get somebody back into that headspace that they'd lost to make the game fun again. Because it's such a hard game to master, so you might as well get some kind of pleasure out of it and maybe make some money on the side. Rene Russo's greatest contribution to Roy's success throughout the course of the movie is that she recognized that he was not somebody that was ever going to be able to take it seriously in the way that David Sims does. He's not going to be able to think it through and make the smart plays all the time. He's going to have to listen to his heart. He's going to have to get back to what made the game appealing to him. And go for it. And go for it. And try to hit that bloody pelican off the post (laughs) from the bar. I like the bar bet scene where actually the villain outsmarts the hero, which is so backwards from most movies. Sims is the one who hits the ball onto the street and it just keeps on going, so he wins the longest shot contest. Oh, you're talking about the seven iron who can hit the longest seven irons. I was talking about after the first round of the U.S. Open, they're all wallowing at the bar in the clubhouse, and they bet you can't knock that pelican. Oh, I know. I'm talking about a different one, though, where they have that bar bet, and it's actually the bad guy who wins the bet by outsmarting the good guy. That's That's almost never the way it is in movies. It just served to illustrate that this is a game where sometimes you do need to use your brain, Mm. and... Like I said earlier, you have to find the balance for you, what works for you. I mean, David Sims's case, it's almost always just making the smart play. But you don't have to be the most talented guy in the world. The interesting thing about that Pelican scene, the guy that was narrating it using a cola fountain spout as a microphone. So Gary McCord, the commentator in that bar, he's going to hit a four iron off the carpet. He's going to hit it through the alleyway. And, you know, shut that guy up. And Romeo goes in and pushes him down. That guy commentating did exactly that. He made that shot as a bet because there were a bunch of golfers hanging around oh, board. Really? A huh. rainy day, apparently, and they're all hanging out, drinking in his hotel room, and there was a pelican out the window hanging out on a pier, and golfers love to bet, so let's make a bet. I bet I can hit a four iron and hit that pelican off the post, and they did. When Bev and I covered No Country for Old Men a few years ago, there's a sequence in there which seems apropos of nothing except to make Anton Chigurh seem like a badass, mean-spirited asshole. He shoots a pelican who's just sitting on a post for no good reason. Maybe it's an homage to Tin Cup. <laughs> he bets some money. We just see the result. We didn't see the bet. I bet I can kill that pelican with this shot. Or maybe not kill it, but knock it off and fly away. No, it's possible. I'm reaching. Yeah, I, <laughs> I love linking movies. We tried to link the Mighty Ducks to a few other things, and eh, I don't know if we pulled that one off. Maybe that's a link. Well, here's a link for sure. We get a payoff to the golf accoutrement that Molly had earlier because Roy tries it when he's got the shanks. <laughs> when he's at his most shamed. And he looks even worse than she does. And oh, she looks great in it because she's great looking. But he looks absurd in those things. Yeah, it doesn't help that he's doing it in his boxer shorts and things like that. Let's get back to the Molly and Roy relationship because that is really the heart of the movie. Well, his therapy scene. I would dispute that. Oh, well, of course, yes. Romeo, Romeo and Roy. It's supposed to be the heart of the movie. Okay, fair enough. And they do have the great sex scene, so they're the real love story. But, yeah. The better love story might be the two men. <laughs> so the therapy scene where he lays it all bare and he wears his cleats but takes the spikes out. That's a nice touch that she notices that. Doesn't he say he loves her in that sequence? 
I don't remember. Does he? He obviously is really hung up on her, and she's denying that she's hung up on him. Maybe she's not hung up on him at that point. At that point, he had only seen her twice. So it's pretty shallow. He's going pretty by Pretty shallow, yeah. He doesn't know her enough. Well, he must like her brain. <laughs> he says brain. And it's it pretty... your brain. Yeah, it's pretty clear that Roy's a shallow guy, right? They talk about his dating history, and he has a history mm. of dating topless dancers and things like that. Linda Hart, who has the deed to this place... Oh, yeah. He boss. fucked her at some point. His, she is his boss, isn't she? She yeah. is, yeah. She owns the shop. And I love the fact that you meet her in the strip club, topless bar, whatever the heck it is. Your initial thought is she's going to be portrayed as an airhead stripper character or something like that. But no. Great businesswoman. <laughs> Great businesswoman. The second she agrees to this deal, she starts grilling Roy about pay rates and how much they're selling from the bar and how many snacks the old boys are eating for free. It was fantastic. And her character... Doesn't have a great arc to play thereafter, but every time she shows up, she's got a little bit of a fun line or two that she just sneaks in there. She's with Molly on the golf course at the end. She's standing right beside her the whole time, and Roy is breaking down on the 18. And she's the one that gives you the little story that describes the eponymous Tin Cup, where he got that name... Not golf at all. I would have expected that it would be the golf cup. That's what I think most of us thought it meant, yeah. But no, it's uh, <laughs> as a catcher in baseball, and his pitcher couldn't throw a strike to save his life, and ding, off the old And he played strap. a catcher in Bull Durham who was a great catcher who should have been able to catch any kind of curveballs or sliders exactly. or fastballs. Now that, I'm pretty sure, has got to be some sort of link. Oh, yeah, The sure. director must have made that mm-hmm. the backstory just as a little Easter egg to mm-hmm. Bull Durham, right? Can you imagine getting dinged in the balls by any kind of hard pitch, whether it be a fastball or a curveball, by a no. guy at that level? Ooh, Jesus, once would be bad enough. Even if you do have a cup on. Yeah, I desperately try not to think about that if I can, right? And there's another link to sex, because it's hitting them in the dick. Yeah. We've talked about Renee Russo and Roy, and she comes to her senses and realizes that David Sims is a bit of a dick, and mm-hmm. just out for his own gratification. At the I always got time for my fans, darling. <laughs> but not the other fan, not the guy fan. Actually, I kind of love that, too. It both served to hammer home the point that, A, David Sims is a tool. He's a jerk. He didn't really care all that much about his relationship with Rene Russo. He doesn't care about his fans. He just cares about the fans that might get him laid. Mm -hmm. But it also highlighted the fact that, hey, Tin Cup, Roy McAvoy won the girl. He didn't win the tournament. He's triumphant. But David Sims is not that broken up about it. No. Because he just won the U.S. Open. Mm -hmm. And, oh, look, you know what? I'm famous. I'm rich. I've got these blonde groupies. So, like, come on in. Let's have a little fun. So, It's an interesting little twist to see the hero succeed in that way, but his villain of the movie... Still wins the actual tournament. Still wins, yeah, I mean... It's not like Roy lost and so did David. David won. Yeah, and they talk about immortality a lot in this movie, and that's everything to Roy, and... It's immortal! That's what Rene Russo comforts him with when he makes his shot finally with that last ball, that last stolen ball, by the way, off of the practice tee. Oh, was it? I didn't pick up on that. Well, you know, they're practicing before the U.S. Open, and they look down the balls, and holy shit, these are all brand new Titleists, which are very expensive balls, by the way. So if I ever was in that position, I would for sure steal as many as I could. (laughs) But he's down to his last one. He makes a shot. He scores his 12 on the 18th hole to actually finish the tournament. And Rene Russo tells him, like, who gives a shit whether you win or lose, Roy? Nobody's going to remember in 10 years who won, but they'll remember this hole. They'll remember this shot. They'll remember your 12. Which is absolutely true. But at the same time, a Masters, no, not a Masters, sorry, a major championship, which this is one of, right? The U.S. Mm-hmm. Open is one of four majors in the same way that tennis is four. You've got the U.S. Open, British Open, PGA Championship, and Masters Tournament. Yep. If you win one in your career... Back when this movie was shot, that would have been worth to you about 15 to $20 million. Really? Just through endorsements. The tournament itself, at that time, probably maybe like half a million would have been the prize for first place. But you get so much through endorsement, even if you were not a well-known golfer outside of that one championship. That's what you're giving up. To say, well, you know, the win doesn't really matter, but now you've achieved immortality... Yeah, but you can understand why David Sims is not that broken up about not being the triumphant one at the end of the day and and winning over Rene Russo because that guy is just cashing big time. Another sports movie this same year, also a comedy, Kingpin, has the same sort of deal. Woody Harrelson doesn't win the bowling match. Is that what it's called? Match game, whatever it is. But he does get an endorsement deal. He's the rubber man. Right. So he has that moral (laughs) victory. So not quite the same as this because Sims gets the endorsements. Although then again, Roy probably would too. Why wouldn't he? He's become the star. He's the John Daly. John Daly, when he was in his prime, I think in the 90s, wasn't it? Yeah. Won a few tournaments. He was obviously a good golfer. But he he was all about hitting the big. He wasn't a very good putter, although Roy seems to be good at everything. 
But John Daly had to be making more endorsements than the best golfer was, and Daly was not the number one golfer. He was making a lot in endorsements, there's no question, but he won two major championships over his career also. That set him up right there. So that set him up for life. He was one of the most naturally talented guys in the world, and I don't know what kind of influence he would have had when the screenwriters were writing this movie. I don't know how early he broke onto the scene off the top of my head. But he is very much like Roy in mentality, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you got to go for it. And there's... A big hitter, too. Oh, yeah. Anybody that watches golf, there's innumerable examples of him going for it where you didn't really have to and then kind of blows up in your face. One of the interesting things about this movie is it's almost prescient. You see Roy, one-stroke lead, 18th hole. All you got to do, especially once David Sims lays up, is lay up yourself, go for par. Maybe you make a birdie after chipping onto the green, but go for par on the par 5. A few years later at the British Open, so this came out in 96, right? Mm-hmm. So the British Open was 1999. There's a French golfer in the name of Jean Vandeveld, who was kind of like a journeyman professional, not well known at all. I certainly had no idea who he was until this particular tournament. He was up by, I want to say, three strokes with one hole to play. And a similar scenario, rather than play it safe off the tee, he hit a driver. Did okay, but not great in a not great lie on the second shot. But rather than lay it up on the second shot and then chip on in the third and make a bogey and guarantee yourself the win, he went for it. And he hit the stands. It got a bad bounce off the stands. And then again, rather than laying up, he went for it again. And he hit in the water. And then he had to take a drop. And then he hit in the sand. And they actually made a really good shot and a good putt afterwards. But it was the tin cup moment of all tin cup moments. And then the announcers actually referenced it during the broadcast. How couldn't they? Because it, it was like Tin Cup coming to life. It made Rene Russo's point in a real-life tournament. If you ask me who won the 1999 tournament, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you who won 98. I couldn't tell you who won 2000. But I know John Vandeveld lost the lead in 1999. Nearly 20 years ago. It's still in your memory. It still is. It's incredible. This is also, by the way, this whole thing with breaking down. I keep saying breaking down. He's actually very calm about it, Costner is. But we'll call it a breakdown because he is blowing the tournament. That was based on a real golfer doing that. I forget the name now, but I read that on the INDB's trivia section. Somebody actually did something like that. I don't know if that was a 12, but... Well, it's happened since. I don't know about prior, so I didn't know it was based on anything. I think I read that somewhere, yeah. But John Daly did it subsequently. Oh, yeah? More than once. He had an 18 on one hole because he kept banging shots at the green and dropping them in the water. It happens a lot. And sometimes it's pride, and sometimes it's just... Misjudging the distance, probably. Or sometimes you can't avoid it. Sometimes it's just a shot you have to make, and you can't make it. And I've been in similar circumstances as an amateur player. I can't imagine what it would be like knowing Mm. that millions of dollars are riding on a shot and having to face that pressure and missing and having to do it again. I'm sympathetic. Tiger Woods. We talk about mental aspects of the game. Maybe the greatest golfer of all time, certainly the greatest golfer of the last 20 or so years, started as such a young kid and was great immediately. But when he started not being great anymore, it seemed to be right after his whole thing with being outed as cheating on his wife. Yep. And he has had injury problems, and golfers can be hurt just like a football player can, or a baseball player, or whatever, need surgery and whatnot. But beyond that, why did he become a nobody, basically, and at least not the star? He wasn't winning tournaments anymore. Is it all because mental? Oh, my wife knows I was fucking around, and a lot of fucking around, as it turns out. He was a joke to a lot of us, to general people that, well, he's pretty famous. He was known by yeah. most people. But he became this joke, and it seemed like his golf career went completely off the rails after that yeah. and never really regained it he might have won a few tournaments since then but not the way he was before I is it know. just mental with him you said two things that might equally play into it one is that he was breaking down he had knee problems back problems and if you ever watched his swing I spent a lot of time watching his swing in the 90s and early 2000s because he might have had the greatest golf swing of all time like a robot almost but it put a lot of strain on his body and at that time he was getting older pushing 40 which in golf terms is usually what <laughs> a baby no, not really. Well, when you consider how many great players. Well, then again, people that retire from real sports, I shouldn't call it real sports, but retire from baseball or hockey, they say they're going to go golf the rest of their life. No, you can golf, absolutely. But to be competitive at the level that these players are being competitive, okay, past yes. 40 is very difficult. I think the oldest player to ever win a major championship was 48 years old. I can't remember his name because it was way back when. The oldest well-known one is Jack Nicholas in 1986, was 46 years old. And that was a massive surprise to everybody because nobody expects a 40-plus-year-old player to win a big tournament anymore. It happens, but it's hard because you're playing against young players who are flexible, strong. They're doing things that the older generation didn't do. And in Tiger's case, he was getting to that age. He was injured. But I think a lot of people speculate exactly what you said, is that he grew up being told he was going to be the best. He experienced that as an amateur and a young professional. He set all kinds of records. At one point in this movie... 
In fact, the 18th hole, the climactic 18th hole, the reason that Roy cites for going for it is that nobody's ever finished a U.S. Open at 10 under par, mm-hmm. and he wanted to be that player. Even though he'd already set the single-round record of 62 in the second round, he had that immortality already, yeah. but it wasn't enough. Later in his career, Tiger Woods would be the first player to go 10 under or lower at the U.S. Open and okay. just demolish the field. So I think he had that invincibility, that mindset that he could not be beaten if he was playing well, and maybe it was a harsh realization and it shattered that when he was caught. He's actually getting competitive now. I think it's taken that long for him to get back to a mental state where he could actually be at peace with himself, maybe. Maybe that's the best example, along with John Daly, who I remember at one point was in a straitjacket on a golf course. Something was going down. He was breaking down to that point, and he was also an alcoholic. Yeah, he had some very well-documented issues. So there are two great examples of two of the better natural talents to ever play the game. This movie was just before Tiger Woods changed the game. There was before Tiger, and there was legitimately after Tiger. Once he won that major championship, the first Masters in 1997, as a 21-year-old, and just set the world on fire as far as golf went, the game was played differently, it looked differently, the fashion was different, the clubs looked was different, the length of the courses were different, everything was different. And you look at this movie, and it is the old guard. It's Craig Stadler. Craig Stadler, who I love. The walrus, he's a hilarious character. He's great. He's a good golfer. There's Gary McCord as featured. You see guys like Fred Couples, who's a fantastic natural golfer and still is to this day. Notably, you see Corey Pavin bemoaning the fact that the name of Tin Cup is going to appear on the U.S. Open trophy next to his. This guy's name is Corey Pavin. It's not like <laughs> Gordon Bombay of the Mighty Ducks. Right? It's a great name. It's a great name. It's an old school feel to it. It's that retro late 80s, early 90s feel. You've got the baggy pleated pants, the bad patterns. Do you wear those things when you play golf? I meant to ask you that years ago. What's that? The shitty outfits. The ridiculous looking... 70s pimp. Well, 70s pimps probably dress better than that. (laughs) 70s pimps are awesome. And I would wear it if I could find it, but as you know, I'm a tall man, and trying to find some of those outfits that fit me is really hard. So you just wear shorts or long pants that you might wear doing anything else. Okay. Yeah, exactly. It's really retro, and it's really interesting to see, and it doesn't harm the movie, because the way the game is played obviously never changes in its basic state, so it still feels like golf, and it still captures that feeling brilliantly well. But they talk about some shots, and notably the shot at the end of the movie... 200 and let's say 40 yard shot Mm. that's tough with a wood in any circumstance and like I said earlier under the strain of a US Open I'm sure even harder but today's game if somebody was going for that shot they wouldn't be using a wood depending on the conditions and all that stuff anyway they might be using like a 5 iron Really, And the greatest example of that one of the greatest golf shots of all time is Tiger Woods at the Canadian Open in the early 2000s I want to say 2003 He was 220, 226 yards away from the green, almost this distance. He was in a sand trap. He had to go over water in the same way that Tin Cup does. And he used a six iron out of the sand trap, made it onto the green, and made the putt to win the tournament. Wow, how's that even possible? 18th hole of the tournament. He had to make that shot or he would have been facing a playoff or loss. I mean, it was one of the greatest shots of all time 15 years ago. Now they're even playing longer. I mean, if they were reshooting this today, it would probably have to be like a 280-yard shot or 290-yard shot. Over sand. Or over water. From sand, I should say. To achieve the same level of jaw-dropping awe at making uh-huh. a shot. In the sequence in Tin Cup, when it finally goes in the hole, I do love the music, too. The way that everyone... It's almost like a Rocky type thing. You put your arms in the air. Ah! He finally got it. And then, of course, her reaction. I love you and the smile on his face and everything. But then again, when that happens, screw golf etiquette. Because he gets his ball, he leaves the course with Romeo, arm in arm, and people are diving into the water. David hasn't made his shot yet. He still has to finish it. <laughs> You're supposed to wait around for the guy to finish it anyway, let alone leave the course altogether and have people, it's not his ball, people are diving into the water to go get his ball, which they couldn't identify anyway, of course. That's a lot true. Of balls in the water. I didn't think about that. Okay, then again, there's a lot of Roy's balls in that water from <laughs> yeah. previous days and They've that. They've got day. like a 50-50 shot. Any <laughs> ball in there might be one of Roy's. <laughs> Poor, I mean, poor David. The guy just won the major championship. But yeah, he's probably standing like, I'm going to make my fucking shot. Get out of the water. A few people. And apparently, nobody in the stands, none of the extras, knew how the final scene was scripted. They didn't know that he was supposed to make shot after shot after shot and flub it. All those shots in this movie, I think almost exclusively, they're all Kevin Costner's. He mm. trained. He didn't play golf before this. Played a little bit beyond it. But he was making all the shots. He didn't have a stunt double. I believe that. He played baseball pretty legit in Bull Durham. And I even said to Bev in that podcast, there's a home run in Bull yeah. Durham. He actually hit it over the fence. And both he and Don Johnson, they look the part. When they're making their golf swings, they look like they're golfers. And even to the point of Roy at one point pointing at the fact that his follow-through is really short. 
Okay. And that's because he grew up in Texas where it's windy and you want to keep the ball down and under the wind, which is all true. Know. Like, if you hit a punch shot, you're going to have a short follow-through because you don't want to get caught up in the wind. But that's all because that's how Kevin Costner swung, and he couldn't swing long. So they had to write okay. that into the script so that people wouldn't say, oh, you know what, no pro would have that follow-through. Yeah. Arnold Palmer did. Now, maybe that was because he got older and it was a back problem, but I remember when I watched golf a little bit back around, probably the mid-'90s, I don't watch it ever anymore, no offense. But uh, Arnold Palmer had a shot like that. He would stop with what I guess you'd call a short follow-through. I'm was, assuming that was something to do with physical problems, though. He was an older guy. He was in the seniors tour. He had that follow-through throughout his career, even oh, as a okay. young man. It there was just go. very unique to him. But yeah, it's not typical, let's say. So anyway, none of the extras knew that that was scripted. So if you look at some of the shots during that sequence and people are just groaning and looking disgusted or bored and like, what the hell's going on? And because they were. Because they were. Because they were thinking, holy shit, how many times do we have to film this scene? Is this guy ever going to do it right? I love the fact that that's how they got the genuine reactions out of them there. That was fantastic. You've seen Bull Durham. I know that. You've listened to our podcast. Do you agree that Ron Shelton is, well, you have to agree on this, he is, but he's the sports guy, which means we might cover another one of his movies. White Men Can't Jump, the basketball movies, maybe a possibility. We might do that down the road. He's a filmmaker that's underrated. Bull Durham's a better film. White Men Can't Jump might be a better film. But this is greatly enjoyable, of course. What do you think of his direction and his writing? He co-wrote with John Norville, his only script so far. I guess he's the golf consultant, so the guy got screenwriting credit, but he's really more of a consultant. But what did you think of the behind the scenes, the direction, the cinematography, all that kind of shit? I thought they did a really good job, to be honest with you. That's not my forte. You know, I'm not a big Mm. cinematography guy. But the script felt true to me. The way the golf was shot conveyed, like we've talked about a couple times already, it felt real. It felt like a golf game. It really immersed you in the feeling of what was going on. They really made a good effort at conveying the mindset of the golfers through that gambling. The scene where Roy is at the driving range just hitting balls, not really thinking about much with Romeo behind him, and he starts shanking them. The kind of look of panic that comes yeah. across his face. What's going on, Rome's? And Rome's like, oh, no, don't do that. You're going to embarrass yourself at the U.S. Open. And then the second one, he's looking a little more concerned. And the third one, yeah. all of a sudden, he sits up straight in his chair and... I don't know, and they just come on. Nobody knows what comes to the shank. It's true. It really conveys that sense. Like one day, you'll just show up to a driving range or a golf game, and you'll lose it. Your muscle memory fails Your Muscle you. memory just fails. They call it the yips in baseball. Chuck Knobloch is a great example of that. He was with the Yankees. He was a gold glove second baseman with the Minnesota Twins, and when he went yeah. to the Yankees, he was still good, as I remember. But somewhere in his run with them, he was still a pretty good hitter, and he could still steal bases. But he couldn't throw to first base from second, which is only about, what, 80 or, well, maybe 100-some-odd feet away. No, exactly. But he just couldn't simply do the basic thing he had probably done in warm-ups and practice and actual games tens of thousands of times. And I remember Chuck Knobloch clearly, and you're right. That is the most glaring example of a baseball player getting the yips. And the yips are from golf, too. That's, I think, where the term originates, but more specifically in putting. If all of a sudden oh, yeah, you can't right. make a putt to save your life and you can't figure out why, you might have the yips. Whether it was Ron Shelton or the other screenwriter you talked about, I don't know. They were clearly both golf guys, golf fans, yeah. or it wouldn't have come across the way it did. But I would agree, Ron Shelton does a great job with sports movies. The three that you cited, I like all of them. And Play It to the Bones is a boxing movie, which I didn't love, but he obviously can do different kinds of sports movies too, because is that five? It's definitely four. He's a good filmmaker, and we talked on Bull Durham about how he knows the human condition better than a lot of people. He wouldn't be thought of as one of the great human condition directors, but I think he is one of the more underrated ones. We've danced around Cheech Marin long enough. Let's talk about Romeo. Kiss, kiss. Kiss. I know I've already out and said that Romeo's my favorite character in this movie. What did you think about Cheech Marin's performance? I think he's my favorite character, too. Costner's great. Well, all the actors we talked about in the beginning, the four of them especially, but even the supporting players are all fine, and Linda Hart's good as well. But he's the heart of the movie. He's maybe the best thing in it. I read he wasn't a golf fan going into this, and he became one coming out of it. Really? Which says a lot about That's great. I didn't his know love that. of golf. Yeah. He's a better actor than he's probably been given credit for, because people think of him from Cheech and Chong, which is not untalented stuff they did, but it's also kind of easy and cliche, and they've redone it since. But this shows he's got some range. He is fucking pissed in the scene where they're both breaking the golf clubs, and he walks away from Roy. And he probably should stay away from Roy, although obviously things worked out. Yeah. But I wouldn't blame him if he just never went back to be his buddy or his cohort, his caddy ever again. Exactly. It's a really good performance. It was well-written. Well drawn, and you also get a non-white person in a movie that's obviously filled with mostly white people. Most movies, especially back then, were, and a golf movie even more so. It's one thing about Tiger Woods is that he was a non-white person. And I remember there's some racist things said about it. More than a few, yeah. yeah. Outward that we knew they said, let alone what was said behind the scenes. We talked about with Mighty Ducks a little bit whether or not anyone got the feels, some salty discharge. That scene where Romeo does storm off the course, when he sees Roy imploding a little bit, when he can't resist going for it, when he can't resist his baser instincts 
there's a sense of a look of disappointment that comes over him, mean, just a sense of being resigned to, oh, here we go again. Romeo wants Roy to be better for his own sake, not for mm-hmm. Romeo's sake. He wants his friend to succeed. He wants his friend to have what he always probably should have had. This opportunity to get to the U.S. Open. And he yeah, still and it's doing right it. there in front of yeah. him, and he just can't find it in himself to exercise that small bit of self-control. He's a father figure, too. I don't know how old Cheech Marin is. I didn't look it up, but he's definitely older than Costner is, and he comes across like a father I think figure. I so. It is funny, though, that when he's left out in the rain, when Costner and Russo are <laughs> fucking, couldn't he find somewhere to go, even for a little while, to get out of the rain? Maybe he needs, Maybe he likes he needs to sleep. But he seems to be pretty pissed off he's left out there while they're taking all night. So yes, I guess Romeo is the best character, and his relationship with Costner is probably even better than the one that he has with Russo. The one that Costner has with Russo. The most intimate scene, emotionally intimate scene in this movie, Ryan, is not doing it all night long in the trailer. Mm-hmm. It's that really sweet scene where Romeo and Costner, or, or Romeo and Roy, I should say, are, are sitting down side by side, doing a nice little puzzle in the dead of night in South <laughs> and Texas. Camper. And they're <laughs> camper. They live in a camper that they take to the U.S. Open. Just having a little heart-to-heart over a thousand-piece puzzle. And Romeo gets Linda Hart's so character sweet. at the end. He ends up with her in that little Mexican dance type thing they do before we cut to Costner and Russo and the trailer talking about how next year Roy you can get back on the tour and be a real golfer which I guess he's going to be while she counsels the head case golfers that's right well listen Romeo was a great wingman he waited out in the rain so that Costner could get his you know the least that could happen in the screenwriter's eyes is Romeo getting a little action himself yeah and the shanks left Costner along with his semen <laughs> okay <laughs> he was very relaxed alright so underrated movie thumbs up obviously for both of us especially with you being a golf guy and it's harder to rip on this movie than Mighty Ducks was because it is better made, it's better acted, better directed. So we got to find a bad one again sometime sooner, or maybe a corny one or a cheesy one. And maybe next week's movie fits both a good movie profile and also a bad movie profile. There would definitely be things you can mock. And when we return with scoring at the movies in two weeks, we'll bully the new kid and then get kicked in the face for it as we gab about The Karate Kid, the original, not the inferior remake with Jackie Chan and Nepotism Smith. Nepotism Smith? Oh, Jaden Smith. Ah, you got it. Oh, boy. That kid's not untalented, but we wouldn't even know his name if it weren't for the fact his parents are Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith. I thought we agreed that the dad jokes were my thing, Ryan, and your thing would be the smart commentary. Well, I'm older than you, too. I'm right, more of a dad enough. than you are. But anyway, that'll be in two weeks, Karate Kid. And that'll be the week of Canada Day and also the U.S. Independence Day. So we've got a sort of patriotic sports movie. There aren't that many patriotic sports movies. I was looking it up. Miracle, which I talked about last week on Mighty Ducks, would fit that. But we just did a hockey movie. And it's also a good movie. We want to do something that's maybe not as good. And it's a movie from our childhood, which I'm sure you've seen many times like I have. Yeah, absolutely. Kid. Wax on, wax off, right? All right. So find me on Twitter, at MovieFiend51. Our website, TopRunnerProject.com. You can't find Chris anywhere because he's not on Twitter. Got a no lot of Facebook. people after me, Ryan. A lot of people after <laughs> he me. He owes a lot of money around town. From Why I decided stats. to do this podcast at all, I don't know. <laughs> he's exposing himself. He's not off the grid after all. But if you want to talk to Chris or give him any points or comments or whatever, then go ahead and do those places and I'll let him know. Yeah, inevitable hate mail can go directly to Ryan. He'll filter it to me. So we'll see on, what is that, July the 5th or 6th or whatever the day is. But before we wrap, right? Oh, wait, we're not wrapping? We're not wrapping just yet because we have one very important thing to sort out before we go. Who is, of this podcast, the Romeo, and who is the Roy McAvoy? You're the Tin Cup. You're the golfer and you're taller than me and better looking and cooler than me and younger than me. So obviously you're Romeo. I'm all those things. (laughs) No, you're Roy. Except cooler and better looking. I am taller and younger. Yes. Well, thank you for those compliments. Well, listen, Ryan. But no, I'd be Romeo, you'd be Roy. Let's face it, we know that's true. Nice. Cut.